Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Storenagel. It was an afternoon in late August, and I found myself trying to, trying to find my footing on the flooded forest ground. There was water everywhere, at times deep enough that I was sure that I would go over my ankles and maybe even as deep as my knees if I stepped in the wrong place. At other times, it was just the ground was so soaked that just the pressure of my, of my hiking boot on it would bring the water up, right? And it would start climbing up the ladder that was not quite as waterproof as I had hoped. The whole thing was filled with water, but I was not about to give up. I knew where I was headed, and I knew why. I really... <laughs> I really wanted to spend some time with her and with her story. And I had been there before. The trouble was that last time I had been there was winter. And the snow was cold enough to keep me dry or it was packed enough that I could just sort of walk over it. So even though I was, as far as I could remember, using the same route through the forest, I was now walking on what was essentially a flooded mire. And I couldn't help but think about the irony of all that water everywhere surrounding particularly her story. So the flood became sort of part of my pilgrimage. And I, I call it a pilgrimage, even though it was kind of a short walk, but I call it a pilgrimage because I was going to a chapel. And there it is, uh, the first picture there. No, that, not that one, the first one, the other one, the chapel. There you go, thank you. There it is. Uh, and I have mentioned this place before here at OIC, and some of you may have known it. Known it. This is at a retreat place called Liagord, and it's in, in Kopang, past Lillehammer, towards Sweden in that direction, in the middle of uh, the waterways and the valleys of the Norwegian countryside. And spread around the wooded grounds of Liagor, they have a number of smaller and bigger chapels that they have built over the years. And this one is a small chapel built in the Greek Orthodox tradition, and it's my favorite. Do you have the other picture of the chapel? There you go. It's a small chapel, very small and intimate place, hidden among all those enormous trees and the wonderful views of the valley below, and I love it for that. As you walk in, you, you leave, you take off your shoes or your boots or whatever you're wearing at this very small vestibule, <laughs> and then they have these oversized wool socks that you sort of just put over your cold feet, and then you step into the sanctuary. And I love it for that intimacy, and also I love it for whom I meet there. I love it for the presence of her story. And in the Gospels, she doesn't have a name. 
But the Greek Orthodox tradition, among others, have given her a name. And I, I kind of like it. I like it that, ga- that they gave her a name. Because we all have names, don't we? We all have names. And it's good to be seen. It's good to be seen. And they call her Saint Fucina, and that's, that's her over there, the first picture. Yeah, there you go. Or Fucini, uh, this, this icon is, is made specifically for that place, so it's written in Norwegian, Helia Fucini. Saint Fucina, Saint Futinia, depends a bit on, on how they call it. And I love how she is depicted in this icon. Brown skin, eyes full of story, and a headscarf that could just as well be covering the head of a Palestinian woman of our days. For me, she is the saint of stigmas, both historical stigmas and hermeneutical stigmas, the way in which we have told her story. But I'll get to that. In the gospel account, she doesn't have a name. But we know who she is. She is the woman by the well. And maybe now it rings a bell. She is the Samaritan of the many husbands and of the brave voice. She is the one who makes Jesus difficult questions that emerge from difficult realities. And she is the one to whom Jesus says things both wonderful and hard to grasp. Jesus is the one that invites her in a very odd and peculiar way, invites her into navigating stigmas and fears and invites her into tasting this thirst-quenching possibility of other ways of meeting each other. And that's why I was there in the chapel, to sit in that story, to, to dwell in the story of their encounter for a little while. That's why I was at the chapel. But why was I at Liagor to begin with? Because I didn't really go there specifically to go to that chapel. I was at Liagor to give a class, or maybe I would call it a conversation, uh, with a group of young people in their early 20s, or some of them were 19 or something like that, but around there, uh, a, a group of young people who were about to embark on an experience of crossing borders and of meeting people and meeting realities that were very different from their own. And they were participants in an interchange program that NMS has called UCRU, which they go abroad, these young people go abroad for a year. And after those few days at Liagor, they would leave to different countries and cultures and spend a year working with local churches and local organizations. And I was telling them essentially one thing. I was telling them to be unafraid. It's a bit different from not being afraid, right? But to be unafraid in their encounter with these others that they would meet. I was encouraging them to be curious, to be welcoming, and to welcome the challenge that comes from meeting these others and the challenges that that they would bring them simply by being something other than what they were or perhaps than what they expected them to be. So I told them a couple of stories 
And I called him, I told him about you guys. <laughs> I told him about OIC. And I told him the story of St. Fucina, of the Samaritan by the well. So here's the story. I want to tell it to you as well today. And it is the gospel writer John who tells it. And we find it in the fourth chapter of the gospel according to St. John. And I'm going to read from verses 4 to 42. Gospel according to St. John from verse 4 to 42. But he had to go through Samaria. That's Jesus. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sikar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say, and that you is plural, (laughs) that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, and again that you is plural, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? 
they left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more than comes the harvest, but I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. So says the word, so says the gospel writer John as he tells the story. And I said in the beginning that I had headed at, to that chapel because I wanted to spend some time uh, with her story. But whose story is this? Whose story is this? Is it the story of the Samaritan woman by the well? Well, surely it was her story. But was it hers Alone, And in what ways was this her story? Or we might ask, why do we still tell it? Well, there are many different ways in which this can be her story and in which we have told her. And there's one common narrative that I wanted to start with because it, had made, it has made this to be her story in what I would argue is a rather problematic way. And that is the narrative that calls this woman a sinner. Though Jesus never called her that. And it is a story, a narrative that assumes that this woman is responsible for her predicaments. Even though the gospel writer John never writes anything of the sort. And this narrative, it emerged from taking what I would argue is an unwarranted freedom with this information about her many husbands. Maybe you heard the story. Because it's a weird conversation, isn't it? Jesus goes, go call your husband. And she says, well, yeah, I don't really have a husband. And then Jesus says, yeah, you had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. (laughs) And very quickly, that has throughout the history of interpretation, grown to very often be a story about describing this woman as a prostitute or as a loose woman, one who was going from man to man to man, a sinner, who then repents of her sins and goes to tell how she has been, she has repented because of her encounter with Jesus. The problem is that's just not in the text, (laughs) It's just not there. It's not part of the story. We have other stories where Jesus 
meets a woman in adultery, and what does he tell her? He tells her, go, don't sin anymore. He says nothing of the sort to this woman. And what's more, it's a bit, it's insensitive to the cultural context. Because we don't know. And here's the thing, in, in near ancient East and in the cultural context, women could not initiate divorce. So how did this woman have five husbands if she couldn't initiate divorce? We don't know. It's very possible, or it's quite as possible from what we know of the context, that she had been shoved from husband to husband. Maybe she was stuck in an unlucky leveret marriage problem, which we have stories of in, in the New Testament. When a, a man dies, his brother needs to take the wife. And then, because women had no legal protection, they would be sent from brother to brother to brother because nobody wants the responsibility. Maybe she had been taken by man and sent out and sent out until she's unmarriable. We don't know. What we know is that there is a story of pain and of brokenness because there is none of these scenarios that we can imagine of the reality of a woman in this time, in the first century, in this place of the world, in which having been through five husbands is not a place of extreme social vulnerability. So John nowhere affirms that this woman's predicament is her own. Or that her situation of is her own doing. But he does do something else. He goes out of his way to let us know that she is caught in predicaments that are not her own, that are not about her in any case, or are not about her in particular. They are about men and women. They are about Jews and Samaritans. They are about religious disagreement and ethnic prejudice. They are about narratives of hate and uttering. It's interesting, isn't it, how John, again and again, he tells us he had to go through Samaria. That's a weird thing to say because if you look at the map, that's the straightest route. So what do you mean by he had to go through Samaria? Well, it is because Jews and Samaritans not only did not get along, but had for centuries cultivated a narrative of each other that was a narrative of hate, was a narrative of avoidance, was a narrative of despising each other. And they shared the same religious roots, the same ethnic roots, but things had happened along the way that had split them in different expressions of faith and different narratives about who they belonged to as a people, and the origin of the Samaritans is actually a bit murky. Nobody knows exactly. What we do know is that the Jews described them as a mixed race who had an, a religion that was improper. And in fact, the Jews has, had actively destroyed their temple on the Mount Gerizim because they considered it improper. So there's this history of tension, this history of hatred and we know how these things go. These stories go around. These kind of histories are our own and are still histories of the Middle East. And there are histories of our streets here in Oslo, aren't they? So he had to go through Samaria. Because what most Jews would do would be go around, take the longer route because it was considered safer and more kosher. 
but Jesus goes straight through Samaria. And he sits by a well in the middle of the day, and in the middle of the day, he meets this woman. And that's improper to begin with. If you think about the kind of story this woman might have gone through, to be alone with a man by a well is a dangerous situation. Red lights are blaring all over the place. What does he want? And he addresses her and he talks to her. Why is he talking to a woman who is a single Samaritan woman in a, by a well? All of these things are there. And John makes sure that we understand that they are there. That we are reminded that they are there. Because he wants us to know that this story is also about that. Does that mean then that this is not about this Samaritan woman at all? That it is all just a metaphor? No, it does not. And that is the genius of John's writing and also of the wonder of the encounter with Jesus. Jesus is speaking to and creating a space in which these things can come to the surface. And what comes to the surface, what comes to this table, is the unfulfilled and broken relationships, the fracturing of relationships that inhabit all of these spaces. It is her multiple husbands. Whatever that story is, it is a story of pain and brokenness and fractured relationships. It is the disagreements about worship and the religious bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. And it is the longing for the Messiah that would heal these and comes in both narratives, but they clash. It is the ways in which this disagreements about religion and history become conclusions about whoever we see and think because they are of that people, we despise them. All of these unfulfilled, broken, fractured relationships, they come to the surface in this conversation, in this encounter, and suddenly there is an offering of a path that is a path of healing rather than of exclusion. So this story is her story because all of these fractured relationships, they inhabit her story and her body. She lives in them. They're not theoretical. They're not printed in a paper in a library or plastered on the news in our phones. They are, they are a part of her skin and of her experience. But it's also the story of the people and of the land and perhaps the story of many others. Perhaps it's our story. However we interpret, you know, the husbands and the, this conversation brings to the, suffer, to the surface, sorry, to the surface a number of realities of suffering in fractured relationships at personal and community levels. And it offers a path of reconciliation. So this is a story about her and it is a story about them and it is a story about us. It is a story about how the ideas that we have and tell and make about each other become very concrete realities in the fabric of our societies and of our bodies and become 
violence and become avoidance and become all of these things. And it is also a story of how a way back to ourselves and back to each other is one that demands grace, demands mutuality, and it is a story that says that these are made possible in the presence of Christ. This is about the generosity of the encounter with Christ and the generosity that is made possible in the encounter with each other and the way in which the presence of Jesus overflows and overflows in the creation of new possibilities of being community, of being human in the presence of each other and in the presence of this divine presence among us, this God that makes flesh, himself flesh in the middle of this mess. And walks the road that all others avoid to tell us that it doesn't need to be avoided. And in the middle of all these complex and dense conversations, theological, social, and, and narrative, and, and ethical narratives at play, and we could talk. I had so many more notes. We could talk about all the theological density that's going on here, all these discussions, all these things, this conversation about places of worship and about water. But in the middle of all of this, something happens. And it's quite remarkable. The Samaritan woman, Fucina, as the Greek Orthodox call her, she makes choices in the middle of this encounter. She answers Jesus. <laughs> she talks to Jesus. She questions. She questions herself. She questions the situation. And then she leaves her water jar. These details of the story, the, the gospel tellers are amazing with their storytelling, right? This whole discussion about water suddenly they're both aware that's not what they're talking about anymore. She leaves this jar of water and goes back to the people. And she, the one with the multi-layered story that can be interpreted in so many problematic ways, goes to the people and says, I've met someone who knows everything that I am. Maybe this could be the one who redeems. Maybe this could be the one who saves. And she allows her story to be part of a message of the possibility of a new beginning, of healing, of reconciliation. And she invites this village of Samaritans to hear a Jewish rabbi who told her of her problematic story and touched it. And they come, and they come by the bunch. The impact of her allowing her vulnerability to be touched by the presence of Christ transforms a whole community. But it impacts and transforms not only the community of the Samaritans, it impacts and transforms the community of the disciples, of the believers. These disciples, they're in the background, right? 
in most of the stories. And they're in the background judging, aren't they? They're like, what is going on here? Why is Jesus talking to this woman? What's going on? And then they are concerned if Jesus haven't eaten, and Jesus answers rather cryptically. And they go, but what, has anybody given him food? And there's another, a lot of subtext to this food thing. Because food was at the center of community. Who you eat with and who you don't eat with, what you eat with whom and what you don't eat with whom was all coded for who is okay and who is not, who is excluded and who is not. And Jesus answers this rather cryptical, weird answer, right? But then when his speech to the disciples and to the Samaritans is done, what happens? He goes and he stays with them, it says. Right? They invited him to stay with them for two days. And he did. And in the near ancient East, east in, in the first century area of Palestine and Israel, this means you eat together. And John puts this in the beginning of the gospel. And the disciples are there. Suddenly, Jesus is not just going through Samaria. He's stopping in Samaria. And suddenly, there's people who are sitting around a table and they're eating together. That is absolutely remarkable. And that's the story, right? That's the... That's the water overflowing from the story and soaking the ground around it. This overflowing of the story onto unforeseen and unexpected places, that's what I found myself contemplating as I made my way through the flooded forest ground on my way to again sit in the story of St. Fucina. And I, she flooded the ground <laughs> with the courage and generosity that she allowed to flow from her encounter with Jesus. And while I was avoiding in the forest to get soaked as I walked through that forest, I kept on thinking that the invitation, and that is my invitation today, the invitation is the opposite. The invitation is that rather than waiting to get to the chapel to take off our feet and put on some warm socks, that we soak in this water. That we remove our shoes on the way and stick our feet deep into the soaked mud. That we become part of this story that floods beyond our little places of encounter and changes how we meet the world around us and how we move in it. That allows that personal encounter of grace with the presence of God that sees us and talks to us the reality of our fractured selves and relationships and allows that to overflow into how we meet 
and meet those around us and talk to each other. And leads to very concrete things like sitting around a table with people we were taught to hate. That we just don't know or that we just have struggled to forgive even though we loved them before. Or they have hurt us. And it goes through a path of healing. It goes through naming. It goes through addressing these things. It does not go through ignoring them. But that insists that the presence of God that the presence of grace, that the power of forgiveness is capable of healing the fractured relationships and realities that we live in. So yes, we believe that this is our story, that this is your story. And John knew the Samaritan woman knew just what relationships needed to be healed, right? just what realities needed to be healed. He, they named it in the test, right? The Samaritans, the worship, the religious, all of that. We know if we sit with it, don't we? The gospel invites us to allow it to be named so that it can be healed, so that it can be transformed. That means having that encounter with Christ, but it also means be willing to go from it with enough generosity to soak the ground where we step. And I told those, those young people about, about OAC, right? Because that's a bit it, isn't it? We walk in here and we see it every Sunday. We come from different cultural backgrounds, we come from different traditions of faith, and we all carry in ourselves the brokenness of our own histories. And we can always just ignore all of that, can't we? We're quite good at it. But we can also believe that this meeting in the presence of Christ brings healing to us, to our relationships, and that we as a community can walk in ways that bring healing to the world. We can also believe that we can gather around a table of grace, look each other in the eyes and learn to love each other. Not do it automatically, but learn to, right? Practice it. And hope, hope that these deep ingrained things in us can be transformed. Hope that there can be healing, hope that there can be transformation, hope that there can be life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you 
that you may know that He is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn His face towards each and every one of you, that He may give you of His peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.